Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, The Monster I Am Today, Leontine Price and a Life in Verse by Kevin Simmons. Leontine Price remains one of the 20th century's most revered opera singers, and notably the first African-American to achieve such international acclaim. As he melds lyric forms with the biography of one of opera's greatest virtuosos, Simmons composes a duet that spotlights Price's profound influence on him as a person and an artist. Quote, That's how I hear her. Listeners receive a 20% discount on The Monster I Am Today or any other title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by Matthew Spector's Always Crashing in the Same Car on Art, Crisis, and Los Angeles, California a vibrant and intimate inspection of failure told through the lives of iconic, if undersung, artists. Carol Eastman, Eleanor Perry, Warren Zevon, Tuesday Weld, and Hal Ashby, among others, and the author's own family history. Through this constellation of Hollywood figures, Spectre unearths a fascinating alternate history of the city that raised him and explores the ways in which curtailed ambition insufficiency, and loss shape all of our lives. Says John Jeremiah Sullivan, Always Crashing in the Same Car is going on the shelf with Play It As It Lays and The Big Sleep and my other favorite books about L.A. I couldn't stop reading it. Always Crashing in the Same Car is out on July 27th from Ten House and available for pre-order now. I'm excited to share this conversation with Douglas Kearney, not only because he is a great poet and a great thinker about both poetry and the performance of poetry, but also because this conversation covers new territory for the show and really does so in a deep way. Before we start, I want to tell a story, a story that isn't really at first going to seem relevant, but stick with me. Doug and I talked on the day the Pacific Northwest heat dome broke. I had never heard of the term heat dome before that week. And the three days of the heat dome, with temperatures up to 118 degrees in Portland, obliterated all past records, and did so in June, two months before things typically get warm here. And this 118 degrees up here in the north is a higher temperature than the highest ever temperatures anywhere in Florida or Louisiana, a hotter record temperature than most places in Texas or New Mexico have ever experienced, and unlike many of these places, most Portlanders don't have air conditioning because it doesn't get hot here. And weirdly, it was even hotter than this much farther north in places in British Columbia that reached 121 degrees. The night before our conversation, the heat dome broke, and within hours, the temperature dropped over 50 degrees, and there was this otherworldly, ecstatically weird and wonderful 
oceanic breeze moving through the Willamette Valley. We sat on our porch and felt the ocean in the air, truly like an act of grace. But the next morning, my cat didn't show up to wake us up as she does every morning. I know what you're thinking. Why is he telling us this? This isn't a show on pets. Douglas Kearney isn't known as an eco-poet. And this conversation doesn't engage with climate change. But bear with me. I found Ewok under a bush in our backyard just before my interview, unable to put weight on one of her front legs. I figured she had either stepped on something that wounded her or broke something in her foot, but she didn't seem in distress. So I plopped her down in the office where I record, and she spent that time with me talking to Doug until I could take her to the vet hospital. After we were done, I spent the entire rest of the day and night at two hospitals that were absolutely flooded with people with pet emergencies. It was there that we eventually learned that Ewok had thrown a clot that was preventing blood flow to her leg. But what struck me, waiting those hours in the waiting room among so many others, was that, and this isn't an exaggeration, around half the people there were with birds, with fledgling eagles and falcons and cooper's hawks and crows, birds that had leapt out of their nests before they could fly because of the heat, and people who are taking the entire day to try to save them. It's complicated because young birds do this normally too, and you aren't supposed to disturb them unless they are injured. But given that in Seattle, there were mass deaths of just such birds, it seemed like this was happening far more than usual. And several days later, I learned that this was unprecedented at the hospital. Couple that with the more than a billion, more than a billion sea creatures, mussels, sea stars, barnacles, hermit crabs along the Pacific Northwest coast that died during those three days and apparently looked as if they had been boiled or cooked. All of this makes me think of Douglas Kearney's poetics, a poetics that works against catharsis and against relief a poetics that, in his words, is about getting people to sweat together, to acknowledge with their bodies that they are, despite what they might think, in it together. And I'm thinking this is the poetics of the moment, not just the poetics of a poet exploring the impossible contradictions of being Black in the United States, but also the poetics of even if you don't think the billion sea creatures that died in a three-day span just before we talked has anything to do with you, even if you have a nest, a home, that you could air condition, unlike the hundreds of people who died directly from the heat across the Pacific Northwest, we are, in fact, all in the same nest. There's nowhere to leap. And there's something amazing about how Kearney is trying to get us to feel that in a way that won't leave us. 
So rest assured, we aren't talking about climate apocalypse or massive die-offs in this conversation. This isn't a doom and gloom conversation, but one that I think is ultimately life-affirming. But I do think we are sort of talking about these things nevertheless. And even though we start by talking about poetry and performative typography within poetry in a way that will be candy for poets, it doesn't take long before things break open to really be about everything. Art making, social justice, solidarity, and more. And in that spirit, unlike my conversation with Darren Negrifa, where I mainly edited Ewok and her dog Mossy out of the final version, despite Mossy's great skills at licking the microphone, I decided to leave several instances of Kearney's dog Luna and hobbled Ewok in the conversation. These two other creatures interjecting themselves on their own time frames to remind us that they are there or to remind us that they are here with us. For the bonus audio archive, Kearney adds two new poems, one that he mentions during our main conversation when we're discussing what topics he finds most difficult to write about, a poem where he moves into new territory for himself, and another that is part of a future as-of-yet unpublished collection. This joins other bonus audio, everything from Nikki Finney reading and discussing Lorraine Hansberry, to Ross Gay reading Jean Valentine, to Teju Cole reading John Berger and Etel Adnan. As longtime listeners know, Between the Covers only exists and continues because of you. Currently, about 3% of listeners are listener supporters, and my goal this year is to try to get this to 5%. If you find this a valuable resource for your writing or art-making practice, or simply a moving or educational or insightful experience within your life, consider becoming a supporter. Bonus audio is only one of a huge number of potential benefits of doing so. Head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to check it all out. And now for our conversation with Douglas Kearney. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. 
Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, poet, performer, essayist, librettist, and interdisciplinary artist, Douglas Kearney, is a graduate of Howard University and the CalArts MFA program. He's a Cave Canem Fellow and the author of seven books, including Fearsome, Patter, The Black Automaton, which was chosen for the National Poetry Series, and Buck Studies, winner of the CLMP Firecracker Award for Poetry and the Theodore Rothke Memorial Poetry Award. His work has appeared in Best American Poetry, Best American Experimental Writing, Roll Call, a generational anthology of social and political black art and literature, and What I Say, innovative poetry by black writers in America, among many other places. A recipient of the Whiting Award and the Contemporary Arts Cy Twombly Award, Douglas Kearney teaches creative writing at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. He's also the author of the work of lyric criticism, Messand Messand. Messand Messand is an ars poetica of sorts, an artistic examination of questions of poetics and performativity, and a book of which Fred Moten says, humans have made a mess of things and nothing but swarm, sheen, shimmy, stagger, and stutter is going to get us deep enough to get us out of it. An old new analexical word search and black word research project, an anamessianic mess for the end of time that no one can tell us how to use. Messand Messand is Miss Anne's Apocalypse, Amos and Andy's Under Manumission, and Douglas Kearney's Anti Massapiece. Douglas Kearney is also a librettist with four operas staged and the recent winner of the inaugural Campbell opera librettist prize the book someone took their tongues collects several of kearney's libretti into what m norbessi philip called a seismic polyphonic mashup and which includes an opera in an invented afro-diasporic language harriet mullen has said of kearney you have nothing to fear from this writer but the truth terence hayes says i have never encountered poetry like this before and former U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith says, Where, oh where, would we be without the dynamic intelligence and feats of lyric daring that Douglas Kearney's work has delivered to American poetry? So it's a great pleasure and honor to have Douglas Kearney here today on Between the Covers to talk about his seventh book of poetry, Show, just out from Wave Books, and the collaborative live album with Haitian sound artist Valjanti out from Phonograph Editions called Fodder, an album that includes multiple poems from Show. C.D. Eskelson calls Show a stunning union of poetic formalism and sonic performance. Through rhythmic experimentation using black vernacular, artificial language, and song lyrics, Kearney's poems are powerful examinations of masculinity, race, and Christian faith. Ken Chen for NPR adds, these poems elide the ego and present the self either as a lexical robot, superego, or magnetic meat, the ignoble body of the id. Kearney's prosody is miraculous. Explosive double beats launch the lines or hit the break like a hi-hat. Slant rhymes suggest infinite puns. But Kearney sometimes downshifts from complexity and just cruises around the neighborhood. Formalism as syncopation and signification 
I can't think of another writer as gifted as Kearney is at sound. Finally, Diana Artarian says, reading this book is like stepping into a torrent. Kearney's poems wash over and around you with remarkable power. His desire to explore the mess and music of language more exact than ever. Welcome to Between the Covers, Douglas Kearney. My gosh, David, thank you so much. That's a, yeah, you know, people are very kind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the promo copy for shows says something that I think is really interesting. It says, eschewing performative typography, Douglas Kearney's show aims to hit crooked licks with straight seeming sticks. And I like this line a lot. I don't know if you wrote it. But, but particularly that it says straight seeming sticks instead of straight sticks, mm-hmm. because when someone who doesn't know your work written or performed opens show, there's nothing that leaps out to suggest just how formally adventurous the work of yours that precedes it is, nor the possible ways you might perform these straight seeming poems, which are quite different than what a typical poetry reading might be like. But before we talk about this straight-seeming book's attempts to hit crooked licks, I wanted to start by getting our footing with the work that precedes it, um, most notably performative typography. And I know you've talked a lot about this before, so I'm hoping to frame it a little bit differently. Okay. Um, in your recent video interview entitled Navigating the Briar Patch, you were asked, what one thing you want people to know about your work and you say in response that you want people to know that you're interested in holding contradictory ideas together and for the tension created to generate a heat and a friction. And I think you could say that much of your work is holding together a tension between the stage and the page and also between the ear and the eye and perhaps between the word and the body but but even within that, there are tensions within tensions. For instance, if we take the question of stage and page, you've explored how to make the page into a stage or into the stage, but you've also made work on the page that's intentionally difficult or maybe impossible to perform on a stage. Yeah. So maybe you could orient people who are discovering you now for the first time to performative typography, but not only what it is and how you've worked in it, worked with it, but also in light of your interest in the heat and friction of contradiction? That's a great question. So the performative typography that I've used throughout most of my writing practice is about imagining layering and interruption uh, at some level uh, sonically, right? I've I've tried to imagine how to write uh, a poem using say a word processing program like Microsoft Word, uh, where we could have interruption and layering. Another way way of thinking about layering is the simultaneity. So how can I make something feel like several voices are speaking all at once without using some of the cues that we might expect from a play, um, you know, you know, sort of paratextual language where there's in italics, you know, simultaneously. Like I, I wanted to figure out how to make that just uh, 
immediate and urgent and you know, no, no uh, instruction manual required. And what that leads to, of course, is a kind of question of legibility. Like what happens when you have uh, black type on top of black type? Um, something that's been interesting about that has been the idea that when you have those overlaps of a sort of visual hierarchy of depth, the thing that's furthest back versus the thing that's right up front becomes harder to suss out. And I've liked how that can decenter um, certain parts of the text because you don't know whether uh, whether if if the words father and year are overlapped, you don't know which one is supposed to be in the front of the mix, right? Unless you add some kind of a visual cue for that. So I found I found that writing in that way and using those techniques allowed me to kind of create chorus, allowed me to create. Um, clash and overlap. When I'm working with uh, a word processor, Microsoft Word poem, for example, what I'm hoping that I've done is that the syntactic possibilities of layered text and interruption, or two words not being in the same sentence, but because of their spatial proximity, we connect them or associate them. I'm hoping that those typographic cues, um, visual cues, have rewired some of the way I handle syntax, even when I'm not collaging, even when I'm not layering. And so that has led to something that I've been thinking of as double-jointed syntax as opposed to broken English, right? What does it mean to use a double negative and not assume that that means a misunderstanding of how negatives work, but to assume that it's actually putting something through uh, two sort of uh, ideas at once. Um, and so tension and friction and heat manifests, I think, in the Microsoft Word poems um, using sort of syntactic uh, shifts that I've learned by having a line of text physically overlap and interrupt another, another line of text. Um, and so that to me uh, is why in some ways, you know, the performative typography is, 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 is in show is I'm not doing that beyond what, 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 what a conventional poem does, which is also performative, right? Right. You know, a, a more conventionally formatted poem also tells you where to begin and where to stop and, you know, that kind of thing. But when I think about performative typography, I always think about it as self-consciously drawing attention to itself as type in a way that I think conventional poems generally don't. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that's my dog, Luna. What I think of when I'm thinking about the idea of type that tells you, oh, pay attention to me, I'm doing something, um, gives me an opportunity to talk to audiences a lot about how the fact that every bit of type is telling you to do something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in both your nonfiction book, Mess and Mess End, and in a class that you've taught on ekphrastic writing, writing that engages with visual art, because in a way we, you also calling attention to the, to the visual nature of, of words, which just like you say that any text is performative, but because most texts are performative in the same way, we don't see the performance. And similarly, mm -hmm. we don't 
recognize perhaps the visual component of what we're looking at at a page. Um, you quote in both of these sources in your ecrastic class and in, in your mess and mess and you, you quote Fred Moten who said, yeah. and he said, um, I listen to some music that I love and it inspires me to write a poem. My poem is not going to be that music. And if my poem only attempts to imitate that music, it's not going to be worth a lot. But if it's an attempt to get at what is essential to that music, perhaps it will approach the secret of the music, but only by way of that secret's poetic reproduction. Yeah. So, so if we stay with the tension between the ear and the eye, mm-hmm. between the heard and the word, and how you want to find a way to translate something that defies language using language, you, you've also wanted to figure out a way to bring something like the sampling of early hip hop into poetry. And you've quickly realized that, for instance, quotation on the page is not the same as sampling in music. But I'd love to hear about your interest in this sort of music to language ekphrastic translation. Not necessarily, it could be about sampling, but just in general, this idea um, of, of, of translation in this sense. Yeah. Yeah. So on the one hand, something I tend to default to when I'm thinking about music and language is, you know, as you mentioned, sort of early hip hop and hip hop in general. And what I find striking about that is how hip hop and rap specifically makes uh, makes speech language um, into a musical form, and then with what simply with what sampling does is oftentimes it takes a block, sometimes of just of, of, of music, sometimes of speech, and transforms that. Uh, source material in two really fascinating ways to me and fascinating and so the first transformation is as an extracted clip it becomes this almost like plastic uh hole like w-h-o-l-e right um you know and so and so it's just this unit it becomes a unit of sound and total sound decontextualized from its original source but also with its own particular kind of integrity as this object. But then some producers, some DJs will then chop that unit up into new uh, constituent parts. And then they can shuffle and shift those parts around. So it's taking this flow of language, right? That gets recorded and then that's turned into a unit. Then you get a sample of that, which removes it from that flow of language into this smaller unit. And then you can transform that language by chopping and then reconstituting uh, it, resequencing it. So in some ways, what that does for me is it makes me imagine that each word is instead of like a, a keyboard, a, you know, a, a laptop keyboard where each letter is a unit, I begin to think of each word as having its own key. So if I wanted to say the word bop, you know, like if I program that onto a sampling drum pad, there would be just a square usually <laughs> that has bop assigned to it. And so I just go bop, 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 bop. And if the original line was it's a bop, then I could be like, it's a bop, 
And so, so one of the kind of things that I do in my poetics is what happens if I imagine just having one sentence or a very uh, short amount of, of text? How can I reconfigure that in so many ways that I can create an entire new uh, unit of sound out of that? Um, so the translation for me, where I've gotten to now, a part of what I'm interested in in translating, that is to move not from, but to include the textual and the textural, right? Because something that's important to kind of keep in mind about sampling is it isn't just that a recording artist needs a baseline, right? Like they could, like most recording artists with any kind of budget could afford a bass player who could come and go, they might even know somebody who could go, but what they want is the texture of that particular sample's creation. Uh, they want that baseline, which was recorded in 1974 in a studio as played by this person whose bass was rigged up this particular way. And then they want that sample's texture and timbre to come into tension with whatever other musical components are part of that track, including their own voice. And all of those blended ambiances, all those blended timbres create something that you could not create by simply replaying the baseline yeah. and having a live drummer. Um, and so, you know, like could not easily create. Now, now there are people who, producers who specialize in creating new material and, and making it sound like it's from a studio in Memphis from 1962. But that is a, is a more recent development that's completely related to this question of like sampling and texture and timbre. Well, I, I love that one of the, or one of the sources and what seems like at least at first an unlikely source for your own breakthrough in, in transporting sonic techniques of say early public enemy into your poetics is Susan Howe. So yes. tell, tell us about Susan Howe and public enemy um, and how, and how she um, is at least one uh, poet who has worked with the visual or with translation essentially of something non linguistic into language on the page. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I was at a conference someplace I can't remember where it was uh but someone was talking to me about my work um and said yeah well you know it's clear that you're influenced by Susan Howe and I sort of said I don't know <laughs> I don't know that person's work um and so immediately um because I'm always excited when somebody sees a genealogy or sees a relationship like like the idea, like I try to push back on the idea that I'm the first person to do any of this stuff. You're like, like, no, I'm not, right? You know, uh, but something I used to say to my, you know, my art students is, um, you know, you know, Picasso wasn't the first person to use paint, <laughs> right? But if you are interested in Picasso, if you like Picasso, then there's something he's doing with paint that that that's that's interesting. So that idea of being the originator of some of something. Uh, isn't necessarily important to me. So I immediately went and looked and it, and it was depths, uh, D-E, and then I think there's a, a, a parentheses B. Um, so it's debt, it's deaths, it's depths, it's all of these different things. And in that space, 
what Susan Howe was doing in that collection that just messed me up in the best possible way was when she would collage text, she didn't seem to be interested um, in making sure that the text was, was, was completely uh, cut around carefully, visually sort of like, like, I must make sure all the words appear. I must make sure all the letters appear. Instead, there would be sections where we would just have like the, the, the descenders of letters P and Q and the very bottom half of those letters. And those would be sort of like range. Some of them looked like they were like they were collage from typographical studies, not even texts, but just like, you know, like a study that's sort of like, this is what the letter Q looks like in this typeface. We have a lot of Qs. It's possible that she would pick repeated layered, but this is why that, this is why that was such an important moment for me was because when you cut a sample, there is, depending on how you do it, evidence of the cut. Now, some people want to make a perfect loop. So they want to go, if we go back to the old baseline or something like do 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 right? They want to cut that. If they just want to cut that do 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 they're going to cut it and make it so it's clean. So it loops as do 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 But even in that, you hear this tiny little jump, this tiny little bump, and that's the cut. That's the cut. So by doing the techniques that, that Susan Howe does, you're aware that you're looking at, or at least being convinced, that you're looking at text that wasn't just typed into this particular uh, program and then reprinted, that you're looking at uh, cuts. Mm. And those cuts are everything to me right now. The, 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 the cut. Um, because that's the moment in a sentence, uh, like like a like a, 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 a sentence from my poem Demonology, right? Uh, you know, which is not collaged, but but here we go. Uh, what it fiends to be end, but claims hella outsets can't ever was from amnesia works worksheds. So that what it fiends to be end, but like all of those moments of words to me feel like two different sentences jockeying for position in one. Mm. And, and that is, a, that to me, I, I hear that in my head and I conceive that in my head as a cut. And so sometimes if I've written a line of, uh, of, of poetry uh, and it feels, you know, and it feels a certain way that's before my feeling of like, I've worked this line down, I've worked it. What I'm trying to do is figure out where can I put a cut? And now in the visual work, that cut is, can be very immediate. But when you're doing the stuff that's where the cut's going to be syntactic and not typographic, that has done so many things for, you know, for my writing. Mm, I love that. Um, well, I want to, I want to stay and maybe embody this question of contradiction and the heat and friction of the contradiction a mm. little bit more. It's not abstract or theoretical for you. You've talked about how your interest in contradiction is tied to the seemingly irresolvable contradiction of being black in, in the United States, or perhaps more broadly, a person of the African diaspora in probably most places in the Western hemisphere. This may seem like an obvious or maybe a softball question, but I, but could you speak into the contradiction of the lived experience of, of black Americans for you in relationship to your poet, poetics before we actually move to your poems? 
So and I really appreciate you saying for you, right? Like, like, you know, uh, you know, that's that's really important. Um, because I could ask my neighbor and they'd be like, what? <laughs> uh, but for me, I think about the there's a word I'm trying to put my put my hand on that I'm not um able to come to, but I guess I would say the and this isn't quite the right word, the sort of foundational or the paradigmatic, the paradigmatic quest, uh, statement that I can think of when I think in this way is oftentimes, you're not a human. And then the response being, yes, I am. But then what happens then is, well, we are going to create a world in which you're not. <laughs> and so how does one reconcile um, being a human in an experience that is intentionally created to make your sense of self meaningless, right? Like, and this is something that a lot of people, you know, like there's so much tension around this. Like, you know, like you, you have people who are like, well, you know, if you don't act like a criminal, people won't, right? You know, treat you like what? Well, like it was never about what this person was gonna do or not. Um, Right now, so you, so it, but, but the question then becomes, well, then do you just act any kind of way? And so that becomes these kind of circular moments of contradiction and tension um, or, or even paradox. And so I'm really interested in two quotes from, from rap lyrics that oftentimes help me think through this. One is uh, uh, now Yasin Bey, but recording that is most deaf. He says, stay fluid even in staccato. Like, so that moment of being fluid even in staccato, right? So like, how do you occupy both of those positionalities at once? Or um, Andre 3000 from Humble Mumble, uh, the song Humble Mumble, when he says, a Metacritic, I made her shit her draws. She said she thought hip hop was only drugs, guns, and alcohol. I said, oh, hell no. But yet it's that too. It's that moment of absolutely not, but also yes. Right. And so that space, that um, that space of, of 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 conundrum, paradox, contradiction, I know all those things mean different things, but, but that space um, to me is the kind of primary friction space. And so something that I've been thinking about as a way that that functions, um, again, not as a to assume that there is a function of it that's not just abjection, that's not just lack, right? Going back to that idea of saying, I ain't got no, as not being, oh, they simply don't know how to say, I don't have any. No. What does it mean to have that double negative? So for me thinking about that, um, I've been thinking about, I was thinking about this a few years ago in terms of like um, the online world and how context when we're on a video or when we're responding to a friend um, uh, in the 21st century because of the internet and all that kind of stuff. And this has been amplified by the quarantine, which is to say, um, you know, I have a friend who did a, a presentation in Poland two days ago, you know, but in her living room. <laughs> so if I think about a world in which context and locality has been suspended, and I think about the narrative that's oftentimes been a part of sort of um, uh, uh, Black rhetorical traditions about we're going to get there, we're going to arrive, we're going to get to a promised land or whatever. 
I started thinking, well, what if the only way to actually survive the 21st century is to not assume there's a destination anywhere and that you're always just going places? What does it mean to have an entire cultural, a, entire leg of your cultural tradition, entire part of your cultural tradition that's been about, we're moving, we're moving, we're moving, we're living at the same time that we're moving, we haven't gotten there sometimes yet. What are the technologies, what are the rhetorics, what are the ontologies that come out of a tradition that is in part informed by always being elsewhere? And how can that actually help in quarantine? How can that actually help in the 21st century? So for me, I'm, I'm, I, I find those moments of friction, I find those moments of what seem to be unsolvable um, conditions, I try to look at them and recognize that if something is truly impossible, it doesn't happen, <laughs> right? If something is impossible, it doesn't happen. So if it is possible for people to develop culture and live in certain conditions, this isn't to say we should keep those conditions. This isn't to say they shouldn't be corrected, but it is a slight adjustment for me to now say, what does the double negative do? Like what does um, always trying to get there do? And then it becomes possible to imagine, well, like maybe destination isn't the way. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we should turn from destination. And so that becomes something that informs my poetics in a really no, This is a perfect segue to something I wanted to ask you about your relationship to catharsis. Mm. I, I feel like we can draw a through line from the impossibilities of black life, the spectacle of black death, the forever promised and never delivered justice with your poetics that your interest in playing with the variables of stage and page, mm -hmm. um, interrogating and reinventing the stage and the page, breaking down the boundaries between the stage and the page, or erecting unpassable boundaries between them, is, <laughs> is to get at the fraught history around Black performance and how Black life, and perhaps most notably Black death, is put on a stage as spectacle, as show. And, and it makes me think of your reading and conversation with Evie Shockley to celebrate the publication of show in April. Your reading happened the day after Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man and father of a two-year-old, was pulled over for expired registration tags, and during an attempted arrest for an outstanding warrant, the unarmed Dante Wright was shot to death in front of his girlfriend by an officer who claimed to be attempting to tase him but reached for the wrong weapon. In that conversation, you talked about black predictive power, that we are here again in the new same place, that black people can see the future because it is the same. You then read a passage from Shockley's book from 10 years ago that could have been about the day you were reading or the day we're talking now. And Shockley then reads a scene from Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, published 70 years ago, that again could have been about the contemporary moment she was reading it in. This is the frame, rightly or wrongly, from which I understand you when you say that your poetry resists catharsis, but I would be interested in hearing more about how resisting catharsis is embodied in your poetics. 
I think that one of the things that I'm trying to do around catharsis and around that changing scene is I am trying to destabilize or unsettle at some level in a way that lingers. Um, when I read something that changes me, it is very rarely my experience that something that's that's a uh, you know exciting or dramatic or fantastic um, uh, sticks with me in a way that makes me try to walk differently in the world. So the idea of releasing something like like I I understand uh, that that trauma exists for people and um, and the the desire to to release that from oneself or memory is is a real thing. When I'm creating a poem, I am interested in what stays and lingers what makes you go, I don't want to keep doing this same thing over and over again. And what's very important that I, I, I need people to know is the first person that that is directed at is me. And the fact of the matter is, I might be the only person who has that response to anything I've written. Um, and if that's all that happens, I cannot look at that as being wasted because I'm a person in the world. I have contact with lots of people through teaching, through readings. So if all I do is manage to change myself with the poem, then that self is the self that's going out and talking to people who might not ever read any of my books or any of my poems. So that matters. So it's not... It's not to say that I am walking around looking at people and in my best self and in my best mind going, you need to change, <laughs> like take this and get, get fixed. You know, like, like that's, that's not, that's not the first thought. Right. Um, but what I can do is with my knowledge of the history of performance, with my knowledge of, you know, the, the, the informal knowledge that is going to a reading and sitting with people and watching when people go or or are checking their phones like all of that kind of anecdotal informal um research right all of that does come back when i'm thinking about revision or what i'm thinking about in this in the moment in the instance of performing catharsis for me is relief um, it might be something that you that's hard to get through to get to the relief. But I will say I'm not terribly interested in giving every reader I write for relief. Um, I think there are people who will read my work and there will be a moment of recognition that allows a different positionality to the to the text that might make it so that they're like, oh, okay. It's driving in a straight line, straight seeming line 
but I recognize something in there. So I, that no, I, so I know now that I'm actually standing a degree or so away from the path of the poem. So I'm going to watch it go past me, but I'm still going to get the dust and the, and the coughing and all of that that comes with that passage. Um, so recognition is something I seek in the work. And sometimes that's, that's at the level of a cultural recognition, you know, a, 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 you know, a moment of allusion or a direct reference or you know, a, a quotation, but sometimes it's the power of pun to go, I'm reading that, oh, wow, it means two different things and happening, and those things are happening at the same time. So that moment of recognition is another sort of way of creating a relationship between the reader and the poem in question. And then it's based upon that reader's experience with the language, with what, what seems to be being uh, summoned up or, 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 or you know, indicated that will determine how much uh, they're released <laughs> or whether they're kept in this in this sort of space of tension. But most most often, I will admit, I am looking for uh, the space of tension. Um, and if I and if I can say one more thing, I was at a AWP panel um, on um, conjuring and uh, and sort of, and and you know supernatural and, and like you know those kinds of modes. And the poet uh, Jonah Mixon Webster, who is a brilliant writer and performer, uh, got up and did a perf and did and did a poem. And I was sitting next to him and the sequence was that I was going to present my thing after him. And I felt like he was drawing in <sighs> years and years, way beyond his years, of tension, anger, fear. I, I just watched him on the stage uh, at, the, at the lectern, like, like doing this piece. And when he finished, there was, it was just silence. Um, and so I got up and I said, if anybody in this room feels relieved or better or released after this, after what you just saw, get the fuck out. This wasn't a show. And, you know, and that went back and forth, you know, it is, you know so um, in thinking about, in thinking about that, moment where to me what was most apparent was uh pain um but he was up there holding it he was up there holding it um it reminded me of something that i saw uh rosamond s king and um gabrielle seville say at a, at a at another awp uh uh panel where they said after they do their work they do not do q a they don't come out there and now put on a different face and talk about it. They actually go back into another space and do a kind of care work for themselves because people are drawing stuff in, but it doesn't leave cleanly. Like I fully believe that Jonah is walking around with that, with that event still in his body. I believe that Gabrielle and, and that Rosamond 
still have that in their body. So they haven't released in a sense of let go and, 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 and have gotten rid of and, and it's gone. No, if there was hurt in what they did, they have injured themselves. And I'm using them as examples because that's me standing and looking at somebody because I know for myself, it's not gone. It's not gone. And I don't know what I would have to do <laughs> to experience actual catharsis because everything I do, I lived in with whatever that was. So it stacks and stacks and it stacks. It doesn't go. Um, and, and, you know, and, I, and just, you know, I know there are people who have made uh, the concept of catharsis the central tenet of their research um, and their knowledge base. And there are probably people hearing that was, oh, well, that's a very limited and narrow understanding of catharsis. And I'm totally willing to say that that's fair and that's fine, that that's my understanding. But I also think that when you talk to most people in an audience and you say catharsis, the idea is release and relief. Mm -hmm. And I'm not terribly interested in giving anybody relief. I think there are poets who are very gifted at that and that that is their work. That is what they do, but it is not something that I feel necessarily driven to do in most of my poems. Would this be a good time to hear a couple poems? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Um, how about starting with black flight? Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so this is Black Flight. It's from Show. Came I was way out as it flies, but an easy green in skies, isn't it? My call to end is a nice, though it's like the knot I keep my knickers in to, hey there, stay here. Damn right, I'd rather not not squat some pissy asphalt, plot not, rather put them up where I got to pick it in self-defense. Not no, but if so, then where'd I roost my hoodie among cooing polyphony? A no-go, a no-no, unless I'm turned me round. Awful's everywhere I was. I couldn't see me there. Only pinions. I've eyefuls of my absence everywhere. Um, here I go. Hey there, I call now and mow and mow and mow. Been listening to Douglas Kearney read from his latest collection from Wavebook's show. Before show, your your performative typography had sources and influences that were really varied. Comic books, Italian futurists, advertisements, liner notes. And jo Joelle uh, McSweeney, mm -hmm. who, who writes a very glowing assessment of show for the Poetry Foundation, nevertheless calls the departure, formally speaking, away from performative typography, a frankly alarming departure, which I kind of love. Because yeah. <laughs> that that you releasing a straight seeming book would have the power itself to shock, to itself be transgressive and unsettling, sort of speaks to what has come before show. But I, before we read another poem from show, just tell us a little bit about why these particular poems you decided you wanted to present in a straight seeming way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Joelle is, yeah, super. Supercon fellow traveler, as you say, right? Um, so show was unplanned. 
Um, and I say that because, uh, you know, I tend to be a planner when it comes to uh, manuscripts. I've been working on a manuscript that I was calling um, actors, not real people. And this was going to largely talk about performance in, in a way that I hadn't generally done, um, largely through film. Um, and so I was you know, thinking a lot about film at the time. And so I've been writing these poems called The Techniques of Acting, um, you know, that were in many ways, you know, like lyric poems, right? <laughs> lyric poems uh, that, that a person could just type up if they wanted to review. <laughs> and, so, and so I've been writing these poems, uh, but then, uh, and I remember this distinctly, it was uh, December of 2018. Um, I just finished my first semester of teaching at the University of Minnesota. And so I said, well, let's see what's going on with that manuscript. And I began putting together all the poems, just kind of get a sense of like, was there a there there? How close was I? What did I need? And I instantly realized that in order to make that a full collection, I was going to have to write a bunch of poems that I no longer was interested in writing. Um, and that was, you know, that was briefly like kind of like a, a disappointing thing. Um, so I then started going back into all of my recent poems and, and deeper archives, and I put together a collection that I that's net that's called I imagine I've been science fiction always so I, I had like a pretty good nucleus for that but I also knew that with those there were some things that I needed to rework as well but I was excited about those I said okay well, let's put that over there that's great in the act of kind of culling from past poems to figure out whether I was going to have you know one or a second manuscript the poems for show uh, began sort of like talking to each other. I mean, there's, uh, you know, the poem, the showdown um, and the post, I think those are from 2008. I mean, some of them are, are actually rather old, but revised now with, you know, the, the inter, inter, intervening experience of, of writing from 2008 to at that point, 2018, and then 2019 when I was doing most of the revisions. What I became very interested in as that book came together, however, was thinking about book studies and how book studies of all of my books at the time, except maybe um, Someone Took Their Tongues, had the largest amount of what we might call the performative typography poems, um, what at the time I, I sometimes call InDesign poems, and Microsoft Word poems, right? So that had like a high level of, in terms of proportion. With show, I was beginning to see that the poems that I had already written that were um, performative typography, like, oh, no, that won't fit, that won't fit, that won't fit. And it got to a point where it seemed like I was going to have what in my, what in my briar patch of a brain would feel like as an equilibrium. It's very important that the visually typographic, the typographically performative poems are not read or looked at as gimmicks or special effects. And I think the fewer you have, the more it can feel like for a new reader or even somebody who's familiar that's like, oh, this is a little thing he did. And now we're back to normal, right? So at some point it got to this place where I was like, these are the, these are the rules for show. I'm gonna split it in half. Each half has to have the exact same amount of poems. The first poem for each section will start with a very similar start. And then the last poem of each section is going to be an ology. Mm -hmm. And those just became 
constraints. And so as I worked, it was just like, those won't come in. I won't put any performative typography pieces in there because there just wouldn't have been enough, I felt like, to make it make sense. And that's when we got to the place that was actually me, you know, putting my, my money where my mouth is and things that I've said in the past, which is experimental is not a style or an aesthetic, it's a process. And so for me, making a book with no performative typography was an experiment. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and that to me was, it was some of the most giddily anxious so like anxiety, but in a good way, right? But also still that too, right? <laughs> right, right, anxiety. Oh, hell no. But yet it was that too about this book and what it was going to mean. Uh, would it look like a retreat or a course correction? Would it look like, you know, what would it look like to, to readers who are an audience? And audience is something I think about all of the time as material, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right, right. The audience is a uh, is 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 in some ways material. Um and so yeah, so that so that made me really want to push the syntax um into something that would feel to me like I was writing it having learned something from the visually um, you know, uh, the, the performative typographical work. And that informed almost every revision strategy for the poems as the book came together. Can, can we hear the title poem? Absolutely. So show is written in a form called a torsion. Um, now torsion is a form that was created by a former student of mine named Indigo Weller for a class that I, that, I, that I enjoy teaching, which is sort of a lab in creating new poetic forms. And torsions is the name of a lace weaving pattern, I believe. Um, at any rate, the Teluton uh, sequencing that comes from a sestina, sort of repeated N-word, uh, has been sequenced based upon a lace weaving pattern because Indigo's, uh, I think, grandfather worked in a, in a, in a lace weaving uh, uh, factory. Um, show. Some need some body or more to ape sweat on some site. Bloody pearl or dirty spit hopped up for to show who gets eaten. Rig body up, bow bow to breeze a lazed jig and sway to Griggs good fiddling. Pine deep dusk, a spot where stood body. Thus they clap when I mount bonk jig up the lectern, bow to say it's all good. We gathered with stud the bins of dives deeper, darker. They clap as I get down. Sweat highlights my body, how meats died bloody. Look fresher for showing. I got deep spit out my mouth. A rigid red rind, bloody melon. Ha! No sweat. Joking, nobody knows the trouble. Rig full Odeus. Show why I fixed this mess. Spit. In tragedy's good eye. This one's called Jigger Gogglers that bow housefully. They clap, be misunderstood. Hang notes high or deep. Make my tongue a bow. What's the gift? My good song box? The gift! Jig 
goal. Nickels from deep down my craw. They clapped. I so jolly. Stood on that bank. Body picked over blood. E rotto. Braxton sweat. E brow syndrome. Spit out a sax bell. Rig a negrocious show of feels. For show. Sweat equals work. Bloody ink pot of body. I stay nib dip. Show never run dry. Rick Burrusly, I spit out stressed feet. Lives jig, ha, 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 ha. Good one that I is bow, deep but not out. Stood shining dim, they clap. Waves slapping hulls, deep, don't mean sunken. Goods, not yummy, right? Bow, blanched with foam, jig jigs. This one's called, they clap. Barrow, so much deep ends upon dead, stood. I on that bloody rise of sweet body. There you is too. Sweat it lets. They clap. Right, some ask. Post, spit, or lift. I said show. I've been listening to Douglas Kearney Reed's show from his latest book show from Wave Books. So is there, given the, the absence of the obvious performative cues, that are different from the normative ones. Um, is there is there a way that you read each of these poems in show? For instance, when I think of your other books, there may be cues sometimes, say if something's larger or smaller or bolder, or um, that might suggest louder. Is this give you more ways to navigate, or do you still have sort of a an internal grammar in terms of the performance of? of each of the show poems. What I, what I do when I, when I don't have those visual cues, as you, you know, point out, like, so, so on point, um, is I try to use registers of diction quotation, uh, that it's possible for someone to go, uh, if you see the text be misunderstood in quotation marks and the O is O's of stood, then to me, that's not just quoting a lyric, that's quoting a particular performance of that lyric. Um, and the performance I had in mind is Nina Simone, right? Um, you know, um, and I try to imagine a term I use a lot with students is like, constellative understanding. So like a bunch of different points that you can then sort of draw and create um, uh, an, an, an understanding from. And so a part of what I wanna do um, when I have a moment where I imagine a different texture of voice or a different tone is I will, you know, I will use phonetics. I will throw all the exclamation points that my <laughs> my, my laptop will allow me to key in. Um, you know, I, I try to use as many textual cues um, as possible to give someone um, a sense of what I heard when I when I was writing it. At the end of the day, though, right, like like you could have a very plain spoken um, uh, piece of writing and people will still read it and go, well, it means this or it means that, or I think it's this or I think it's that. Um, so there's a part of me that's, that's sort of like, I am very much aware of the possibility that anything that I do that 
is designed to make it very clear to direct the reader on what's supposed to be happening, right? In a way that's not like, you know, writing a play or writing a, a script of some kind. Um, there is still the deep possibility that they will come up with something different. So for me, I would then rather not sacrifice the, um, the textures and timbres that I can create using these kinds of sentences, using, uh, you know, slips into and out of uh, syntactic constructions that are reminiscent of something that might be familiar. Again, that question of recognition. I, that, that space that's created by a poem, even in the poems that I read, is so important to me. Like, 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 you know, like a poem in, I don't read poems to have information conveyed to me, <laughs> right? There's so many easier ways to get information than a poem. So I don't look for that when I'm reading a poem. Now, when I understand something from a poem, I understand it not simply as, ah, this person's sad. Um, it's understanding what that sad, how that sadness feels or what it does to language. An exercise that I oftentimes have my students do is I'll have them each pick up their pen and I'll say, all right, hold the pen in front of your eyes about four inches away or five inches away from your eyes, just, just like horizontally in front of your eyes. And I have them look at that for like five seconds. And I say, describe that pen. And they write that pen. And then I say, take that same pen and turn it, angle it toward your eye, like it's going to jab your eye and move it as close to your eye as you can without hurting yourself. Describe that pin. It's the same pin. It's a completely different pin. And that to me becomes what we can do in a poem, right? Like, I don't want you just to know there's a pin there, right? right? I want that pin to be the pin that this poem demands. And so, and so that to me becomes something. So that being said, like, <clears throat> like legibility and understand and like, you know, like I, I, I am interested in ideas. I am interested in um, writing something that if a person cares to spend time with it, um, doesn't look like, especially because of the expectations created by performative typography, doesn't look like just words thrown at a page. Like I'm not terribly interested in that. But my whole thought is by not thinking information, information, information in a very in a very sort of dry and adorned way, I'm creating an environment that if a person spends time in there, there is something engaging them beyond just like, I need to break through this sentence. What is it saying? Yeah. I need to understand this line or this stanza. Um, and so that becomes a part of what uh, sort of, you know, that's that's the horse that a lot of my that a lot of my prosody or poetics and decisions are is 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 being drawn by like that that direction of I want to give you something that makes you stay in a place like that makes you want to stay in a place even if everything else is telling you no <laughs> like, like, yeah. Like, like yeah well I wanna I want to go deeper with questions of performance and being on stage and start with a question from someone else to you. Um, up until now, um, all of the writers who've asked other guests questions have emailed them and I've, I've 
spoken them on their behalf. But so it seems fitting that today's question is the first time someone is taking me up on speaking themselves. Oh, whoa. (laughs) One performer to another. So here we go. Greetings, Brother Doug. It's Gabrielle Seville here, your poetry sis from back in the D-A-Y. Yes. Congratulations on show. The very title of this book synthesizes vernacular, display, and one, one of my favorite things, performance. Those elements were also really alive in your recent Bagley Wright lecture. So good on banter and self-destruction in the poetry reading. And I love in general how your work moves on and off the page. In the title poem, Show, you write, I, on that bloody rise of sweet body, there you is too. And I'd love to hear more about the I and the you in your work, especially in relation to the body on and off the page. I on that bloody rise of sweet body, there you is too. How do you figure and forge those dynamics of I and you? Is it the same in poetry as it is in performance? I'd love to hear. Thanks. Oh, that's a... That's a toothsome one. Thank you, Gabrielle. <laughs> Thank you, Gabrielle, for that. Um, I am much more likely in performance to do the basic assumption that the I is 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 me when I'm thinking about that um, because of embodiment because of the fact that even if I had, even if I was using a found text and even if I read that found text without any change, my consciousness, my decision, my agency, my subjectivity are why that found text are being, is being written and is being read right now and performed right now. So I don't believe that you can stop being the I um, just because you're reading somebody else's words, like you, you are, you are there. And the same thing then would come from a poem that I might write in persona, right? Um, I, I love persona poetry. Um, I think it's, it's one of the things that most excited me when I first started writing very seriously in the early aughts. But even so, that persona comes out of you too. It's not some other person, um, like, I wrote that line. Now I might write it to be satirical or I might write it to critique it, but I wrote it. So it's not, not me, (laughs) you know, it's not, not me. Um, uh, uh, You know, and I, and I sometimes will say like to students, that's like, you know, every poem is a persona poem. Um, You know, you are presenting a version of yourself. That's not all you are. It's just that the way we understand persona poems is that the, 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 the point of them is that the reader recognizes, oh, this is a wholly different character, right? In a lyric poem, that's not you, so to speak, because you, you know, might have come up with the line, um, 
the yellow house where I was born, right? But your brain is actually going, yellow memory, ah, yeah, 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 smell, smell, cake, 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 food, shake, like, all that stuff is happening. So the yellow line <laughs> where I was, the yellow house where I was born is a persona. It is, this is the reflective me, but it's not necessary to think about that as being different from who you are in the way that a poem like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Wiley Coyote, Wiley Coyote, down in the mouth. I think it's down in the mouth by Tim Siebel's, or um, you know, or any of I's poems. You know, oh my gosh. So that I, when I'm performing, is much easier for me to locate immediately in my body. And I think when I'm dealing with you, again, that becomes audience. Um. I don't find that poems that I've that I've revised that I'm that I'm that I'm happy with last using a second person point of view that's supposed to be me, right? Like like I I find oftentimes you know just totally my own shit, right? Like you know that if I'm still talking to myself as if I'm not myself and using that you. It's usually for me because there's something I'm still reluctant to kind of think about or to have in my body or to say that I about. Um, now, on the page, uh, you know, kind of going back to this, back to this idea, um, there are a couple of poems in show that I felt were important for people to hear them as or read them as not as as a persona um, to see that it wasn't uh, me who was uh, who was standing by these ideas um, as much as it was me who is presenting these ideas that I've created and therefore I'm <laughs> these ideas that I'm articulating that I feel like you should read I am still responsible for the poem so when I say it's not my thing. It's not about not my responsibility. I put them together. I wrote them. I decided I made changes, but that if you read uh, a poem like uh, Negroes, uh, here we are, like uh, Negroes are a fat suit, love Hollywood USA. It's important that you know only that if you had gotten used to the voice and the subjectivity that was do the cruise line up, slow grind up, that you were going to have to pivot a little bit when you read Negroes are a fat suit. Love Hollywood USA. And that's strictly just because as people sometimes formulate an understanding of a poem, they use the poems that are around it to help do that. So that's me signaling going like, yes, it's still me, but I'm no longer dressed for uh, shoveling, for shoveling, uh, digging a ditch. I'm now dressed in a tuxedo. And so from that, you'll now go, oh, tuxedo. So this is a different way to think about whatever the occasion or whatever is happening. So that is where I would kind of go with the I and the question of persona. Again, you know, a, a friend of mine, Sean Webster, has a has a, has a practice um, with a lot of his early chapbooks. He said, um, Sean Webster is guilty of this book, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, I'm like, no, I'm, I, so there is, it's all I. <laughs> right. But if you're interpreting and you need to understand why this person who just seemed to be um, uh, upset about uh, the sort of instrumentalization of Black people is now writing with an eye or a perspective that's like, yeah, this is what we do. It becomes important for you to know that the one voice 
is distinct from the other voice. Um, the you, now that, ooh, Miss Seville, Miss Seville, Miss Seville, that is the tough, tough, tough question, right? Because that you is an intentional, well, well should be an intentional uh, description or indication of who you expect to receive this poem. And therefore, how are you talking to that person? Um, now, imagine two cards. One is a card that you're giving to one of your dear friends. The other is a card you're giving to your grandmother um, or your grandparent. You might write a certain way to the card for your friends. And you might, you know, I don't know, I, I would write it in a different way, you know, to one of my grandparents, right? So that is a really basic way of understanding the you, you know, happy birthday to you, you motherfucker, right, is one thing. <laughs> happy birthday to you, grandmother, is another. And so there are moments where I am, where I have, you know, thought about if there are people who I want to have that experience of recognition that I talked about earlier, and that recognition is culturally based, I am deciding at that point, is this for them, you know, again, that driving towards, that driving toward them, or is it for them, even though it's not addressed to them? <laughs> Yeah, which is, you know, how signifying works. I mean, signifying works that you directly address one person, but it's really for everybody else in the room to understand what you're saying. Well, I have a ton of curiosity and questions about questions around the embodied I and the embodied you. So the audience, perhaps that you don't choose, that you happen to be in the same room with, um, because one what this is a variable you've engaged with the stage in the body the black automaton moves the body in a way off stage and patter is very body centric but when i think back to your early interest in making the page the stage i think the one way that can never be brought to the page is simply all the things that are uh, communicated through just the physical presence of a person in the same room performing the poem as other people. So Absolutely. like, so like, I mean, this is many things, race, gender, ability, uh, yeah. how they're dressed, uh, how tall or short they are. Um, and you can indicate that in words. You could say, this is spoken by yeah. a straight black man, but the actual body in the same room is going to convey something that that isn't going to convey, I think at least. Absolutely. No, no, I think that's true. Yeah. It seems to me that you, there's this performative jujitsu required of you to perform your work because it's a critique. Sorry. No, it's fine. It's my sick cat. So among the many things that are that are brought into play it feels like you perform a sort of jujitsu in that your work is itself a critique of violence against black people being performed as spectacle where your performed work compared to most poetry readings is quite spectacular 
And I don't know if it, if it is a conundrum, but it seems to be charged and yeah. full of risk. And, and to risk being presumptuous, it feels like one that seems a, a risk that you've developed a lot of techniques to navigate. So I was hoping yeah. we, could, we could talk about you in front of your unchosen audience performing your poems, which are critiquing the way um, black life is performed. Yeah, yeah. When I think about violence um, inflicted, enacted upon black people, and I think about uh, audiences and the question of how to perform these poems that, that invite the question of the spectacle, um, and then to perform them um, spectacularly in, in the sense of related to spectacle, not in the sense of like, I'm so fucking awesome. <laughs> like in that other sense. Um, that, yeah, that's, that, that, that wears on me. You know, it's, 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 an old, it's an old problem. It's a problem of the tradition, right? Like, how do you sing about something ugly with your beautiful voice? Like, like how do you do that? Um, what does it mean to criticize um, cruel entertainments um, and cruelly entertain, right? Like so, so, um, and and that's not a that's not the the contradiction that I kind of go like, ha ha, look at this. It's in one hand, it's in the other. No, like as a human being, that feeling um is corrosive to me um and so some of the techniques that i've developed um is this idea and it's something uh from the lecture that that gabrielle was talking about is this idea that the most important part of any poetry reading for me is no longer the poem. The most important part is the space between the poems. And how do I transform that space so that I don't finish a poem and have the equivalent of about, and then this next one's called boom, boom, boom. How do I do something that A, reminds us that we're in a poetry reading, which is this really structured thing that many of the people who read my work will be familiar with. Like you go into there and you do this and you do that. Um, so what I've tried to bring into my readings, um, especially during the time of banter, is I have tried to think about that time and that space in the same way that I think about writing a poem at home at my desk. Something happens or I think of something or I, there's some kind of stimulus or something. And then I respond to it first, just like immediately and quickly, I'm gonna get a chance to revise it. So, you know, it's like, oh, I think I write that down and I keep moving, but that writing, even if I cut that line later, as anybody who's revised work knows, even if you cut that sentence later, you now have to kind of see, well, do these other sentences or lines make sense without that? Mm. Sometimes, sometimes they do, but other times like, okay, so I have to retrace and I have to 
figure out how to include that line that I'm cutting in such a way that I can now make the rest of the piece, the essay, the story, the poem make sense. In a live context, that sort of moving from association to association requires a kind of a commitment to taking it wherever it's going to go. It only, and this part's, I've never phrased it this way, but I feel like it makes sense because it's a knot of things. I feel like it's right because it's a knot of things, which is this. The way we most recognize that a poetry reading is a structured performance is to point out the aspects of it that are uh, this sort of formal agreement that we've all, that well, we've all, but many of us have learned by going to public poetry or other kinds of public speaking events. A way to remind us of that is to not play as though being in a room with people uh, have been flown out there this morning and now you're there and afterwards you're going to ask answer questions and you're going to go have dinner with grad students and you're going to, you know, like that that's just the way things are, right? That's the way things are. We just agree. No, the point is to show the zipper in the sea monster's costume, right? Now, once you start doing that, <clears throat> you can have a moment of, ah, that's charm. Yes, yes, right. It's kind of a meta moment. But if I want to turn that into a feeling of being in the brain of a Douglas Curdy poem, I have to keep going. I have to do the entire reading as though, because it has, I just got into a fight with a water bottle. <laughs> like I now, the rest of the reading now is affected by the fact that five minutes ago, I got into a fight with a water bottle that fell off of the music stand um, and that I literally fought it. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I love where you're going with this because one of the things I really love that you've spoken about is power and agency between being a reader versus being in an audience. So when you're a reader, you have control over your time. You can stop in the middle of a sentence. You can reread. You can close the book. You can read slowly. You can read fast. So the reader has a lot of power in their engagement or a lack of engagement with a work of art, whereas an audience member has very little. It's orchestrated by the person performing both the, the, the experience that they're having, how long it's going to last, how uncomfortable it's going to be. But one of the things I thought was really interesting is maybe it's the inverse of your interest in early interest in turning the page into the stage. You've talked also about how you've wanted to make the, the poetry reading into a compositional space for mm -hmm. yourself as an artist. Mm -hmm. So in a way you're composing your quote unquote, writing the poetry reading as it's happening, which I think is what you're alluding to with the water mm -hmm. bottle, whereas mm -hmm. the water bottle, whatever happened by chance or synchronicity with the water bottle, does that, is that partly giving the power, some of the power that you have as performer back? Mm. I, I, like, cause in a way you're now putting yourself at risk. You say there's this normative way of doing a poetry reading. It's on, in some ways it's on your terms compared to the audience. It's not on your terms in other ways. If you're invited by a university and you're supposed to give Q and a and then go do the grad students. But I wondered about this dynamic um, of putting 
yourself into a compositional space in front of an audience? Well, I mean, this is what's funny though, right? A, a, a kind audience uh, gives over a lot of agency, but that's not the definition of an audience. I've been to readings where in the middle of that's a reading, a, a person got up and yelled, parasites, parasites, because of something I'd said and stormed out. They stopped the reading temporarily. They controlled the time of the reading, right? So it's really only the only person, right, at a poetry reading, I won't say the only, but the main person at a poetry reading who is actually subject <laughs> uh, is is the reader if I go up there and I just kind of like you know just like talk like yeah so I got on the plane today and wow it was really you know weird kind of a time on the plane I didn't really like it and everything that's my 20 minutes I'm done like I have not poeted <laughs> I haven't given the thing that's been that I'm supposed to be given that I'm supposed to be giving by the in the opposite of this is this I don't have the right to demand from the audience member that they applause, that they applaud, or that they go, oh, or that they stand up and say, that was right. I am basically up there with a task. And that task is being constantly evaluated by the audience. And in my head, that means the audience actually has more power. The audience has more power at a poetry reading. You've convinced Be me. Yeah. Maybe less power, maybe some, maybe less power over time. Less power over time. But not less power. Unless they interrupt. Right. Unless they interrupt. Correct. At which point they have now taken control of time. Like if they heckle, like which doesn't typically happen at most at least university poetry readings that I've been to. It's happened at some bar readings. It happened once. I read at the freaking mall once. But like, but like they can interrupt the flow even in ways, and this is one where it's, where it's not an angry, because I want to make sure people, like, have you ever been to a reading of any kind and the reader pauses and somebody in the audience thinks, oh, it's over and starts clapping? That's taking control of time accidentally because now the reader has to either go, I'm sorry, it's not over yet, or talk over the applause or wait for that applause to end. That's taking control of the time. So I think that the audience... Uh, even has some control over that, but they do not have control if they are going to sit and receive it. They do not have control over how fast or how slowly I read. I read, and 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 I and and that is a recent way of thinking because what you were talking about earlier, we talked about the control of time, was absolutely what I thought when I wrote that, mm. and it's only now after writing the lecture on banter that I really started to think about. Well, no, the 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 audience. The audience can allow itself to be subject to time that they cannot control. But at any moment, an audience member can say, even benignly, could you please slow down? Right? Yeah. And in that moment. No, you know, you're, you're right. You've, you've yeah. convinced me. <laughs> I want to talk about your Bagby lecture. You, you, you've, you've talked before about your discomfort of reading or performing a poem, say, about James Byrd Jr. being dragged behind a pickup truck and then hearing the audience applaud when it's over. Or, as you've already alluded to, having to shift from something that you've performed and, as you've suggested, 
may still walk around carrying in your body long after the performance and then have to switch modes and do a Q&A. And the lecture that Gabrielle Seville mentioned, the, the Bagby lecture you delivered, I, I killed, I died, banter, self-destruction, and the poetry reading is itself a performative lecture and one that on the surface is about, quote, how to be funny when reading at a poetry reading. But the more you press on this word, where for comedians to kill is to do great and to die is to bomb, the more your lecture becomes clearly an examination of the poetry reading itself, but also the tension between wanting to be funny and thus entertain the audience and wanting to make the audience feel the pain that you feel or felt writing the poem or the thing that inspired the writing of the poem. Um, and then questioning that yeah. you're, you're, you've in various places said that human cruelty is probably your chief subject and you've ruminated over the cruelty to the poet themselves of performing certain work, but also have had your performances called cruel. And your response in at least one inter interview was, that's fair. So here again, we're at this doubling. You, mm -hmm. you are really funny. And seeing you perform is also very painful. Um, so I guess, how is this funny, cruel, collapsed polarity presented itself for you and how has it changed or evolved or not changed or evolved over time? Mm. And, and maybe in, specifically in light of this new book and, and reading of it, is there anything in that polarity that um, is specific to show? Mm. Well, the line that Gabrielle pulled from show, um, I, uh, on that bloody rise of sweet body, there you is too, sweat it lets. And the word that, that, that precedes I is stood. So stood I on that bloody rise of sweet body, there you is too, sweat it lets. That's a moment where I'm saying essentially that the murderers, uh, deaths of countless people, um, most immediately, a person might assume that I'm talking about, you know, Black folks, right? And yeah, that's, but I also think about, you know, uh, you know, First Nations folks, like, like, and here we are on that rise. I think about so many people, um, you know, the people who are poor, um, you know, people from, uh, you know, like Pan-Asia, <laughs> like, like, you know, you know, like Latinx folks, like we're standing on these bloody sweet bodies. The poems that I'm doing are so often about a dead black person or a harmed black person. So it would be ludicrous for me to assume that at some level, if we imagine that image, that I'm not standing on it, but so are you, um, without even writing the poem, because look at the history of this country. So let's sweat that together. Um, sweat before in this poem was about my labor, my energy, right? 
but it's like, nah, you should be sweating too. Mm. You should be working on this too. Um, and not, you know, like, I mean, like that, like do the work is now a very easy phrase, like throw into something and to signal something. Um, but I want to talk about sweat as a source of, uh, of, of, as a way of imagining energy being expended, but also as a way of imagining discomfort, like, you know, flop sweat, like, like, like that sort of thing. It's like, we should all <laughs> be like, like, this should make us all like anxious as we go about doing things. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's one of the ways that show allows me um, as a book to talk about that performance in a very different way. And of course that was, you know, facilitated by Messan Messan and all of the work, which feels like this kind of continued arc. I mean, Buck studies, I almost, Buck studies almost look nothing like what it looked like because when it was, when it was very close to it being published, you know, we, we had just had the, the, the recent uptake of attention towards uh, black people, uh, you know, murdered, like, you know, whether you're talking about, um, you know, Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, like, 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 people were talking about that in a way that it had kind of been quieter, I should say, people like the mainstream media, people talking about it more. And so, you know, Buck Studies, which is about, I mean, so the poem Stagger Put Work In, which is, you know, a retelling of the Stagger Lee myth, each poem, I, I, I'm pretty sure each poem in that has Billy Lyons, a black man dead in the middle of the poem. And I was just like sitting there thinking to myself, do I want this to be the centerpiece of the book? And the only reason I was able to still do it was because of the poem, the, the, series, the poem series, Ecce Caniculus, in which Bruh Rabbit takes the place of Jesus during the, the Passion Play. Um, and therefore a figure that's associated with blackness, like averts suffering, doesn't suffer. Um, and that was the only way that book could make sense to me. So even that is informing, like all of it's like a, a, a stream for me. Well, when you talk about sweating together, and I think about maybe where some of these comments of, are your poetry readings cruel? I think of the anti-catharsis impulse. <laughs> because yeah. I think of, because I don't, I don't feel like, I think you intentionally craft an experience where where it's hard to know how to parse what's being delivered. So for instance, mm -hmm. when, I'm, when if we're talking about the the performance you embodied in the room, uh, you'll often, there's a lot, you have a lot of facial expressions and gestures that happen that people aren't going to, listening to the radio are going to miss. But you'll often end a poem with a very exaggerated, grin for instance but it feels like a false grin and it feels like a caricature of a grin and it feels like the last thing you expect at the end of that poem is a, is a smile or you might introduce a poem by saying the first thing a poet should always do is begin with delight and then read miscarriage poems or yeah. so there's all this you've created this sort of performative technology that I feel like when you talk about the way you and Gabrielle and others um, carry 
like there's this question of self-care and how how much can you perform these poems and what is that doing to you but i do feel like you transfer that into the bodies of the audience i, I don't know if that's your if if that's your goal but oh, yeah. but i feel like <laughs> i i attend a reading of yours and then i walk around with it uncomfortably for a long time um i don't know that that's i don't think the word cruel would have occurred to me mm. for that but um, but I do feel like if someone's going to a reading to be entertained, maybe moment to moment they might think they're being entertained by you. But in the end, I feel like something else is happening that lingers that's not that. I, 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 I'm really grateful for that, um, you know, just that parsing of the feeling, right? Like... You know, the word the word feedback, I think, is is, you know, has been made into a sort of a euphemism. But I think I think of feedback as in like this is what my experience was. And so I really appreciate that as um, that feedback. I mean, I. I want I do want, you know, as you pointed out, like I do want the audience to be um, impacted and affected um, and to carry that, um, I, I, re I remember, I remember once, um, uh, a black woman came up to me, uh, after, after a reading and was, and, and had this response that I thought, that I thought was really important and clear, but it was, it was basically like, you need to tell us not, it wasn't, precisely like a trigger warning, although, you know, trigger warnings, like, like, you know, that's, that's fine. Like people give trigger warnings. And I think that, that, that helps a lot of people in, in audiences, but it was more about if you're going to be ironic about something terrible, how do you prepare a person um, so that they don't feel like they're carrying the brunt of the irony? Like, it's one thing to play with irony or danger or the grotesque when you are the person who bears the, the cost. It is a different thing uh, to be a straight man and think, I can do cis, you know, cis, cis hetero man and think that I can do a bunch of like several, like just wave after wave of poems that are misogynistic, but no, they're ironically misogynistic, right? Like, like, like that's, that's what I'm doing, right? Like, because if it's misunderstood, the main people who suffer for that are people who I am not. Right. And so that, goes in direct tension, of course, with a perception that I think is important that people have today of like, well, who are you writing about? Who are you writing towards? Who, who are you including in your formulation of the subject, right? Um, you know, if you have privileged access to certain kinds of spaces, um, what should you be doing in your poems? Um, you know, what should you be doing in that space? There's also, of course, always the opportunity of like, using your privilege to make room for other people or seeding certain opportunities you might get. But that question, of course, 
becomes a really fascinating boondoggle. I mean, I have had people say to me, I want you to write more poems about, about an experience that's not mine. And my response to that, you know, when, if I sit, if I sit with it, like my immediate response can be anything from, you're absolutely right. I must, I must, I must, uh, or guilt or, 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 or reject, like, why would I do that? But if I sit with that as a thought, I always come back to the, the, the problem. And this is a processual problem. How will I write about that using any of the techniques that I have learned that I feel are the ways my poems work without doing harm to a person who I cannot claim to be? Who, you know, if you grab those, if you rounded those people up, right, right, I wouldn't be there. And so that becomes something that I've thought about for a long time and have worked at in different ways. Um, but, 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 you know, it's, it's one of those kinds of, kinds of and, and there will be people who will say like, well, you know, you write whatever the hell you feel like writing as the way you write it. And I think that's important to say as well, like that if an audience member walks up to you and says, I, or a friend says, I, I would, I, I wish you would write more about this. Like, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you don't have to do that at all. And some people might think of that as an absolute imposition. I understood what this person was saying to me, um, but it didn't mean that I knew how to do it yet, right? And so at that point, like maybe I didn't write one um, and have it ready for the next reading, right? But I don't think they were extracting that. They weren't saying like, I need you to do this now and I'm not going to hear you again. But it was like, what does thinking about a subjectivity that's not even associatively your own do for you as a writer. How can you, how can you manage that um, in a way that makes sense um, or you know, allows you know, the most precarious thing of all, which is for the poem to be smarter than the poet. This is something A. Van Jordan once said, that the poem is smarter than the poet. Um, then that means that the poem is kind of using the poet as a host body and poem don't care what happens to the poet. <laughs> Poem's like, I'm out there, great. Yeah, you're in trouble, but me, I'm out here. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I've been thinking about that. Um, and these were questions that came to me before what people might want to call cancel culture or anything. So it's not reactionary to that. It's how do you do it? How do you do it in a way that that would in a way that would allow you to be, to leave all the right traces as well as the, 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 the full on presence, like, right, right, you know, so yeah. Well, I want, I want people to hear you performing before an audience, but before mm. I, I play it, um, I wondered about your thoughts about Joyelle twinning show and your album Fodder. She's, mm -hmm. She says, um, show may operate at a relatively low visual volume compared to Kearney's previous books, but circuited to fodder, it smuggles sound into text, resistance into compliance. 
And because these strategies are by nature fugitive, no one medium, form, book, or text can hold the whole of them. In this sense, show and fodder form not just a fortuitous, but an entirely necessary and uncanny double body, audible, tactile, stormy, oceanic, profound. I would say that that is an accurate and insightful uh, understanding of their existence. Um, I don't know what ultimately that means for uh, the reading of my work or, or, or perhaps like, you know, if it's a big enough of a thing to enough people, um, what it can mean to engaging other people's work. Like, like, I don't like something there, there's, there's a, there's perhaps a limit. I can say a thing as much as I want but a, there is perhaps a limit to how often I can read a poem aloud in a certain way and not seem to be telling the reader, the listener, the audience, um, that this is the way it's supposed to be done. Um, there seems sometimes to be a limit um, to how long people will, 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 will really believe me when I say like, read the poem, like there's punctuation that would tell you that, that that's a question, that this is just the end of a thought or that this poem has, ends with no terminal punctuation. So that's a different kind of sentence. Like I can do all that kind of stuff. And then the rest is pretty much up to the reader, right? And we can, you know, I've read poems carelessly before, read them aloud carelessly, not honored the line breaks, you know, messed up a question and, that, and treated it like a, like a sentence. But the more I do in the live environment, which I think of as distinct from, uh, you know, like, like when I started off thinking of the, of the page as a stage, and now maybe I'm talking about the stage as a page, but I start off thinking about that. I was working under the assumption that 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 you could reproduce the the experience either way. And what I came to, and and you know, Fred Moten's quote has been very helpful with this, is that the poetic reproduction of, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix playing Star Cycle Banner, um, or um, the emotions hitting that oh toward the end of Best of My Love, um, or you know, Patti LaBelle with LaBelle on going down makes me makes me shiver, which is I got to say nothing because you know that moment of voice cracking. Like I could try to reproduce that poetically, but it's not going to be the same thing. And there is a certain point where a photograph and a poem kind of part ways. They kind of be like, okay, well, you do that and I'm gonna do this. So what I'm trying to do a lot of times is take it as far as I think I can take it. Because if I'm trying to make a a vertigo zoom <laughs> through a poem, uh, I'm not thinking about the way I usually think about poems. And that's going to make it possible for me to write something very different than I usually do. Mm. Um, so I do, so absolutely, I, th I think that what Joelle said is 
as is often the case with criticism that I read by Joel McSweeney, um, um, insightful and and inciting, right? Um, but I don't 100% know what that means for the next thing. Um, and so in that way, that, that assessment is extraordinarily useful to me because, you know, will the next project have accompanying auto, audio? Um, how will I read poems that really are collaged in such a way that, I, that I'm not going to read them aloud? Like I've been thinking about the next manuscript um, and like, what's that gonna look like? So, you know, um, so yeah, yeah. Well, let's hear a, a track from Fodder that is also a poem and show. Um, the uh, subtitle to this is uh, After Charlottesville, but before it too, shit. Um, and this references um, after Charlottesville happened, um, um, I got a call from a friend um, who isn't black um, and called and said, I want to interview you about Charlottesville because <laughs> apparently when white supremacy happens, white people totally bypass the expert in their mirror and in their houses and look for a black person to find out about what the fuck is going on in their heads. It's either because of our deep Negro magic that allows us to penetrate in that, or another racist stereotype, which is that because we're all thieves, we can pick the locks of their brain and see what's in there better. Now, clearly, we're in Portland, and you're at a poetry event featuring swarthy people, um, so you'd probably never do this. So, I shouldn't have to say this, but you know, this is going on a record, so this isn't for you. This is in perpetuity, right? So don't, don't take this personally because most of you, and like I said, like, like you would never do this, but please, if you're playing this record in future, um, and I wish I could assume that when this record is pressed next year and comes out next year, this would be totally, you know, obsolete advice. But America keeps on giving. It just, just keeps on giving. Who's gonna be in a cage next? Look at the fucking mirror. The reason we're in this problem, one of the reasons, is because other motherfuckers were brought here to do your fucking work for you. So when you ask somebody to think for you, it's kind of continuing a tradition. So let's stop that. We can edit out the ghost shit because I don't want you to get sued, but that shit's golden. Like, and not just because I'm a high yellow motherfucker. Manisology, after Charlottesville, but before it too, shit. They called me, say, speak on the problem. They said I could do it from home, where children with books run in circles, bright, Riots of color and holler. Sure, I'd speak on the problem. Since we do, as always been, night of it and 
and I misgave it as ours, making ruck in the rented house, nicked and dug at it that night, thus us, all the while reckoning us as tearing at what's ours, until we sat jostled, settled, just as how we supposed to, though what we then chose to was kiss a while. This looks like wounds when your skin is your mouth, as it must, because what's the problem is what we must do. We must stay doings for the problem. I said, I've been saying, like we must mule some pallid ass hearts, our backs, carts, or our blood, a soap for shit that's their ashes made ours. Then be the brain their spectral mulling can murmur in like a house. They call to say, speak on the problem. N said, that's why the nerves, the kind of what she said, is just what I'm saying is, after working that problem down to a faint rattle of chains, a vague keen in the walls, we fucked like a burning church. We were shut to it, bones ours, minds crackling with us was someone's problem, their problem, their tangled sheepfuls of tantrums. If I spoke from my home, would I say how we fucked? Drowning, knocking and moaning, with moaning, knocking, phone ringing, like poltergeists wrecking a pantry gnawing the fog of their tongues and their hangnails so hungry for skin for blood and dark skulls to hant always calling and calling still ringing and ringing we are tired and done and hold all that we own i answer the phone i speak on a problem night after what happened, the girl clambered into our bed for half the night after reading about ghosts. The boy, though, slept, a babe, under blades, fan spinning back to where it started, and back to where, and back to, and... We've been listening to Douglas Kearney perform Mainsology from Show on the album Fodder by Phonograph Editions. Is that weird to hear? You know, it's the the, the conundrum about the way I approach uh, poetry readings is, you know, so much of it is going to be improvised. And I want... I want that part of my work to exist in some ways, because as you were pointing out, I do think it 
it uh if I'm doing it right, it doesn't cancel anything else out. It all kind of feeds into each other. Or maybe, or maybe doing it right is to like obliterate one path. I don't, I don't know, but but it's always kind of weird. Um uh because I feel uh, least careful. Um, like the, the, the least careful I am in my life <laughs> is doing a poetry reading. Yeah. But that's also yeah, that's the, the, the choice to compose on stage, essentially, yep. right? Yep. Um, well, yep. I, I, thinking about the subtitle after Charlottesville, but before it, to shit um and returning to this idea of the of the impossible contradiction of being black in america i i wondered if this was connected to or related to your your avoidance of equivalences or analogies when when you say you're skeeved but skeeved out by similes or find that there's a violence in metaphors mm -hmm. it made me wonder about this but i kind of want to unfairly attach this to another question also. So, so thinking about analogies and about your relationship to metaphors and similes, Afro-pessimism has come up a lot recently on the show and it all, it is, it's gone through many episodes, but it all started with me watching you and Claudia Rankin, um, where she made a comment that I'm totally paraphrasing now from distant memory, but something like, yes, Black people in America are not yet fully human. We are not treated as full human beings. And yet we have to pretend as if we are. We still vote and run for office and work for incremental change step by step. And that carried forward into my conversation with Natalie Diaz, who pushed back against this and reject rejected the terms citizen, freedom, human, as, as terms defined by... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the people who had dispossessed the people who aren't considered these things in the first place. Yeah, and we, and yeah. we, we talked about Christina Sharp mm -hmm. and the totalizing weather of anti-blackness. And that carried into my conversation with Viet Thanh Nguyen, where we talked about Hazel Carby, who's the chair of the African American studies department at Yale and her critique of Isabel Wilkerson's new book, but also of Afro pessimism, or at least um, Afro-pessimism as embodied by Frank Wilderson's book, um, and specifically regarding analogy, or at least in somewhat relationship to analogy. So the subtitle of Wilderson's book is it's Afro-pessimism, the ruse of analogy. And Carby's critique is that in placing everyone who isn't Black, whether Palestinian or Native American or whomever, whomever by placing everybody as junior partners in anti-blackness, essentially, right. and ontologically rejecting analogy, in, in Carby's opinion, it was foreclosing the possibility of, of solidarity. <clears throat> and, and it makes me think also then of your opera in a counterfeit language of black vernacular, where one character reveals the English translation but at certain points isn't able to, and thus legibility is prevented or blocked. And I, th I, I see this move also in a lot of works that I love, like Don Miche, um, I will not, I don't know if it was, I will not translate, I will not translate, I will not translate, but something like that where 
much of it is presented or some of it is presented and, and there's a refusal, refusal of, of carrying it across. Um, but I was, I was curious if you place your poetics in relationship to Afro-pessimism at all um, or into this philosophical debate in some way, but either way, whether you do or not, if this sparks any thoughts and mm. maybe if you could um, just unpack a little bit more the, the questions of simile and metaphor for you as a poet yeah. um, and the problems you have with them. When I talk about simile and metaphor as being problematic for me, um, you know, analogy and the question of false equivalence, it is almost always animated for me by the idea that, you know, if we go, what is it, what is it? Um, um, gosh, what is that guy's, and what is this person's name? Um, um, who came up with a form, who talked, I shouldn't say came up, but, but talked about the formula of metaphor, which is, you know, tenor and vehicle. Um, the language that that this writer uses is that the the tenor is the idea being expressed and the vehicle is the uh symbol that bears the that bears the associative weight so in the case of metaphor and to a lesser extent well let's start with metaphor the idea that is that something is being mobilized um to support another idea, regardless of whether or not that thing being mobilized um, <laughs> is allowed to have a wholeness itself. It does the work. There was a, mm. a lecture that I was thinking about writing that was gonna be, you know, the, 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 the irony was gonna be in the title, but it was gonna be metaphor is a magical Negro factory. Um, because the idea that is like, like the, the, the vehicle is always there to prop up the tenor. And the vehicle doesn't get to be itself anymore. It's got to now do the work that the, that the tenor doesn't do anymore. So on the one hand, my first, the, the, thing, that, the thing that always occurs to me when I talk about simile and metaphor in poetry, specifically poetry, is that most often, something is being either substituted or having uh, its characteristics uh, exaggerated in a way that usually moves things from a human into something that is no longer human. So if we think of like the blazon and sonnets, like, oh, your eyes are suns, your eyes are, like all of those things sound like really good, but you're also now saying you don't have, you're, you're not a person anymore. And so for me, when I think about those kinds of false equivalences, I'm oftentimes thinking about how is it, uh, what is the pleasure that we get from kind of going like, you're not this, you're that, and then going, that's right. Because a good sonnet, I mean, a good simile or a good metaphor feels natural. Otherwise, you're working in the realm of the conceit, which is a different sort of thing. But you immediately go, oh, yeah, that's true. This person's this person is a tree, <laughs> right? So for me, 
I would also look and say, if you are comparing people's experiences, if the only way we can recognize that many people are subject to a to, to violence that is systemic is to say that we are exactly the same or that this part of you is what I'm interested in because it amplifies this part of me. I don't find that helpful. Um, I would rather say, um, and this is something that, that, um, you know, that, uh, you know, in a, in a public conversation, if we're going to talk about police brutality, it isn't necessary to say, I don't want police brutality because this subjectivity is what I'm part of. And we get more police brutality than anybody. That seems to me helpful only to one person, the people who care about police brutality. If somebody has stolen money from you, myself, and three other people, it doesn't matter in terms of what we want, <laughs> uh, who got more money stolen. We got to stop this thief. We together have to stop this thief now. But what has happened historically is oftentimes people will say, well, I'm going to get my money back. You're on your own. Yeah. And because of whatever access they have, it's easier for them to get their money back or some other form of restitution than it is for everybody else. So to me, like, I'm, I, res I, am, I am uncomfortable with simile and metaphor in my poetic practice because I am less comfortable with the idea of saying something is like something only through a mode of substitution. Mm -hmm. I'd prefer pun because pun multiplies. Pun allows you to have both things. You find a similarity, but neither one is obliterated by it, right? Um, and in fact, you can recognize something and you possess it in a different way. I, I am subject to the charm and the power and, 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 and the gift of a really good metaphor, a really good simile. But to me, those are defined not by me going, well, that's true, that does seem like that, but defined by also revealing what is being taken in that transaction um so so that and again that's like like i've had conversations with people of, of varying subjectivities that have said well metonymy is actually more problematic for me because of this subjectivity and i'm like okay <laughs> like, like 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 great yeah um you know i am careful about false equivalences in life, in and outside of writing a poem, because I want to push back on the idea that in order to care for somebody else, the primary tactic is they're like me. Yes. That's basically what we unpacked. Natalie Diaz and I were unpacking also, yeah. is yeah. that um, honoring the, the gap in comprehension doesn't necessarily foreclose solidarity between two people. Yeah. Yeah. Difference isn't the problem. It's how we, it's how we treat difference. 
Like that's the thing. Like, like that's not the problem. It doesn't have to be the problem. Um. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. It's if you use it, there's there's something that I, that I say a lot. Um. And maybe it'll be useful here. The definition of stereotype, um, as formulated by Gordon Alport, um, who's a social psychologist, and stereotype is an exaggerated belief in a category that justifies the way we treat that category, right? And why that's such an important definition for me is that what is the first defense of stereotype that people always say? It's like, well, well, they do do that. They are like that. Exactly. And what I, what's important to me about this different definition of stereotype is that observable truth or, 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 or a lie are not the point because it's ultimately not about what the stereotyped subject does or is. It is all about how the person making the stereotype wants to be able to feel good about how they're treating that person. So therefore it doesn't matter if a person's drinking or a person's doing these other things. You know, What matters is why am I mobilizing stereotype? What am I trying to create a kind of alibi for, for myself? And that to me becomes important. It, it's the gap that you and Natalie were talking about, like, yeah, we're not the same, but what will we do with that? Right. Does that? Does that difference mean I don't care about you? Does that difference mean, well, if bad shit can happen, it can happen to you? Like that to me, um, is something that I feel like the logic of metaphorical substitution, I feel like at its, as, as we usually look at it, we say, oh, it is the same. Um, and that, and, 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 and yeah, that might be an important sort of moment of chime and recognition. There's pleasure in that, but I, I want to be able to say, is it though? And yet that not lead to a foreclosure of, like embracing, supporting, and being a part of a part of that that thing on its terms. Um, so so yeah so yeah like you know there's a line in 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 Manusology. Um, you know I mean I'm not going to. It's, it would be so very easy for me uh, if I misspoke and said I never use simile and metaphor like that. Like a person just goes um. <laughs> but typically when I'm using metaphor or simile I. Typically, I am at some level, I am talking about the displacement of, of, of one of the things. I want the presence of that, the, the kind of syntactic and rhetorical violence of that. I want that as a part of yeah. the relation, not as a not as not as smoothing out that substitution. What would it sense. be? Would reading Welter be a good um oh, yeah. a good poem to read? Because I'm thinking. That's not, that's a poem where you're juxtaposing um, two things that are happening simultaneously, which is not the same as creating a metaphor with one towards the other. But what does that create when we have these two things happening? I I mean, I don't want to speak for you if that's what, but, but, um, but I'd be curious about your, um, if you want to introduce Walter, that'd be great. Yeah. So Walter actually has a sort of a, you know, a written epigraph that works as the introduction. In the U.S., news broke regarding the discovery 
regarding the discovery of a mass grave of Rohingya Muslims at a human trafficking camp the same day as the first Mayweather Pacquiao welterweight championship bout. Sick on it, cameras, queasy green lush rush canopy, tilt down, thick bamboo cover twine bound, tilt down, welter, dirt's got rags to gag up, hijabs stuck in dun incisors, zoom in and rack. What's that flesh there? Bone there, bindled and cured skin. Presence, foul traffic, twittering pittas, bulbuls up rough, hum flies, flies plump as beans, boom the snowy browed, rufus chested sing song, jungle jangle. Cut their throats, Rufus, that was months, and was that months ago? The camp boomed, boom, get the boom shotgun mic out the shot, clean, cut, there are too many damn birds, dirty, cut, we can't use this, rap, swelter, late, wait, later, fight, whoop, fights tonight, whoop of the century, tonight, whoop, wait, welters. Been listening to Douglas Kearney read from his latest poetry collection show. So as you know, I reached out to the poet Diana Arterian. Mm-hmm. who was the matchmaker. <laughs> she was our matchmaker for this Indeed. conversation, the midwife making this happen. But she was also your editor at Noemi Press for your book, Mess and Messend. And she sent me a question to ask you and a backup question in case the first one was too personal. And I showed you the first one to make sure you were okay with it. But I, I'm going to start anyways with the backup question. But first I'm going to read a page from Messen Messen, and then pair it with Diana's backup question. So you said in the book that she edited, I am in the habit of thinking every poem is an opportunity to destroy my career. When I think it, I imagine new work. I mean to surprise readers who have come to expect a particular kind of poem from me. I mean to surprise myself as well. I want it to mean that I am not afraid of trying something different, that I'm not privileging my previous gestures, hiding behind what I know. But what it doesn't mean, necessarily, is that I write the poem that demands to be written. You can spend a lot of time not writing such a poem. And here's Diana's question. I think often about how Toy Derricott presses her students to write toward that which they are most ashamed or afraid. Now that you have over half a dozen books, what have you found you are most afraid to address in your writing, either in topic, voice, or form? Put differently, what feels the least comfortable? While there is no denying you challenge yourself as a writer, do you find you write into or away from discomfort? The most uncomfortable thing for me to write about is... Erotic desire. That is the. That's 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 the hardest thing, for me to write about. And a part of it. Is. I've spent, despite the fact that I. Hope I'm trying to do different things. I do feel like I have written largely about the body as a site of more pain than pleasure. So I don't always know, I shouldn't say I don't always, I don't know how to make the sentence that would hold 
um, that would hold my desire without damaging uh, whatever, what, without damaging. And I have tried, some of my most recent poems are addressing the question of sex positivity, um, are addressing questions about um, my ambivalence to the performance of the writing about my desire, uh, the ambivalence I feel about writing around my desire. Um, I've, I have written about, about it before, um, but I would, I would hazard that the times that I have written about it in the past were times where I would be most guilty of obfuscation, um, not amplification, not um, creating the environment that I talked about earlier the, to experience the poem within, creating the pen that's jamming towards your eye. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that that is probably the thing that I'm least comfortable writing about. Um, you know, the, the question that, if, if it's okay for me to, to, to allude to the, the first question that Diana asked, um, was about religion, spirituality. Um, and I am more, I feel like I've written about religion and my own religious beliefs um, scattered throughout, my, <laughs> scattered throughout my, my writing in ways that I feel are more or less clear. Um, yeah, I was raised as a Lutheran. Um, my family was like the only black family um, in our church for most of my time there in Pasadena, California. So not someplace remote, but, um, and I have a lot of like questions about that experience um, that in some ways I feel less committed to a public review of them uh, than I am of other uh, parts of my ideas or, or subjectivity that I think that I think I would want to be sort of like responsible for or accountable for. Um, religion in my experience has been a hard thing to kind of put up for conversation or discussion because at the end of the day, for a lot of religious trajectories, for a lot of religious practices, it isn't an argument that you have. It's a, it's a feeling. And yet so often, most of my religious experiences, um, well, a lot of my religious experiences have been in one sociality or another. I have had private moments of 
religious experience. But those are almost always <laughs> not precisely what I would have learned in the, in the Lutheran church that I went to as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if, like, circling back to your your engagement with contradiction, and I think about the way par- paradox is used in religions. Um, when you're talking about this isn't something to be argued, I mean, you can't argue a paradox by True. nature. And I think maybe at least my notion of one of the roles of paradox in, in religion is, is a, say, the mind can go no further. The grasping mind cannot reduce this to comprehension and that's the whole point of them being there like not that it's ridiculous when people like laugh oh well you know the trinity is one and it's three but but um to me it feels like it's it's putting limits on what a human can reduce to something known but that doesn't doesn't negate the presence of something that isn't knowable and i don't know i I don't know if i'm speaking beautiful yeah yeah, I, no, I think that's, I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, something I think about a lot is like the ineffable may exist, but I think it's much further out than, <laughs> than a lot of people take time to look. Like, I think people, uh, people give up on language for various reasons um, before they've exhausted it uh, or their capacity for it. I like um, that too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I would love for you to read the poem Fire, mm. but I was wondering if you could maybe expand on the note to it and the panel yeah. that you were on that helped you formulate what spirit is for you. Yeah. So I was on a panel with the genius Alexis Pauline Gums, um, as well as Fred Moten, and also uh, moderating this panel was a Terry on Williamson. And we were having a conversation about ghosting, um, the verb of like leaving something, right? Um, and, you know, I can't remember precisely how I was formulating to ghost somebody. Um, I can't remember how I was formulating, partially because the corrective that developed through it just kind of like undid whatever latches were there. But a part of that conversation was the distinction between ghost and spirit. The ghost requires death. Now, now I'm speaking as, as, my, as my take on it. So I'm not quoting either of my uh, fellow uh, conversationalists, uh, but a ghost requires death. Um, it is the, 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 the echo, right? But a spirit does not require death to have existed. A spirit is an energy that's given off by an activity, by something intense that can still be happening. Um, uh, And so that distinction was very important um, because it it does not insist on uh, death or obliteration uh, to exist. It, 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 It is simply... Simply, it is simply a kind of uh, uh, re- resonation or reverberation coming from a source that may be dead but doesn't have to be. And so, yeah, that would be the distinction between spirit and ghost, um, as as come from that conversation. And you know, fire as a poem is really grappling with 
you know, in its most, and it's most transparent, it is about, and it's most fundamental, it's about, you know, homophobia um, in Christian spaces that, that I've been in. And the poem has been through a lot of permutations that have made its original reason sort of less, um, less like the moral of the story is kind of a thing. Uh, but has informed everything about it. A part of my own sense of the complexity of that is that uh, from the pulpit, you know, a lot of churches uh, will speak against home, will speak against um, uh, LGBTQ, you know, and yet they will mobilize a language or rhetorics uh, that are when sung or sometimes even spoken about have the erotic as a as a as a deep part of it and the subject of the eros is almost always in these contexts jesus so there's this thing that on the one hand we are taught you know like if you, if you just listen if you're just observing and just sucking in anything the, the, the pastor says, you're, you're, you're taught that this is horrible and that this is wrong. And yet the ultimate sign of devotion um, is oftentimes a kind of erotic relationship with Christ that, that men are supposed to have as well in the language of it. Um, now, you know, that I feel like would be, like, that's a book. <laughs> like, and many, and many, and many writers have 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 done uh, fantastic, uh, you know, uh, work around these kinds of questions of, uh, especially within the, in my, in my experience, especially within like what one might call the black church and uh, black queer parishioners, right? Um, so I wrote this poem largely as a way of trying to understand the spiritual existence in tension with the limits of the rhetorical um, experience. Um, and yeah, so that's like, that's the, like if I had to set it up, that's how I would set it up. Um, and like, and like, you know, you, you know, and, and I think it's, it's very clear more in my setup than perhaps in the poem that as I can talk about like violence towards black people as you know like and black men um especially right as a black man because i've been thinking about that it's my so like like i can just i'll just throw out you know i'll say whatever the fuck right but i hope it's clear that that the flow of my conversation got a lot more <laughs> deliberate because of what we talked about earlier mm -hmm. um and that is, you know, don't fucking talk reckless when you're not in the damn car, right? And that's not to say that I don't have a stake in it, but again, right. to me, the idea of who will take, who carries the, the weight of that um, if I fuck up, um, you know, that to, me is, that to me is significant and it's meaningful. And again, it's not about, it's about how I'm trying to work in the world. 
is about how if I care about the language that I'm putting into the poems, the specificity of it, if it does something, I want to be able to say, this is why um, that does, that's not an alibi. Um, letting it stay in there and not knowing what the hell it's doing is also not an alibi, but it's also not about being careful so I don't get in trouble. No, it's not about being careful so that I don't get in trouble. Um, although I, you know, I don't like being in trouble, <laughs> but, but, but it is something that I think about a lot. All right. So here's the poem fire. God, we cry because nobody do us like the body. Oh, Jesus, love me, this I. No place low enough to keep me high enough for when I feel filled with it. I am not ashamed to kneel, not ashamed to sing when I have that name in my mouth and oh, turned oh, and I Turn eh, I am singing and turnt what I owe to the blood, what flowed, what we owe, we owe alive, that body by that spirit. What's flowing by the spirit isn't ghost, lest we ghost it. I eye from the row in the body of or up in it, my body up in my row, my eye roll up to lift, to wonder from where I get what come, what's ghost isn't spirit, spirit, what guys sopranos keen pierce, it's licked. Sweet glow, high enough radiating sweat before me. What rides high the pierce they make to go inside us is, oh, in this place. Desk can't shake pearl rung. What runnels me? What runs soak alto shoulder rock? Nobody do us, oh Lord. Oh, the treble throat on its dark ladder. What wrestle? Come hither, come higher, come lower. What wind rattle rock that don't rock, that don't roll? What's owed to the body of this, the blood, what shed? Come quiver, come quaver, climb lower. Oh, go down, oh, do I. Chimes, entertainers, swears, sang now, get happy they got it in. Get it in me filled with what owed. I know it was, I know it was, I know it was the blood. Bear down over it, a cleft, bowed low enough for the tremulous tremor, the things of the spirit in this place. The bases, we come, go down, not ashamed, I, I to come, go down, oh, deep black zenith God, go down, lift up, take in what's licked, sweet body of the body of what's on high, oh, go down, oh, 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 that God, good spirit flow, pierce, run, sway, bowed, what we owe the body, I see, we sang a sweet body of, the sweet body of, we give, I know it was, what flow, in the row, in the body of, the things of the spirit, I turn a rock, rock, Trevor turnt thing, nobody, I know it was, I know it was, my mouth full of sweat, what chime with, what I know it was supposed to be, but shed like a skin, like a robe, oh, I went down, to the row in, the sweet body of, I see, I hear, what said, what said was too ashamed to owe, what flowed from the spirit, I know it wasn't, I know it wasn't, what I see, some said, like a snake, like a shame, what I owe, what I owe, when down in the row, the word don't do me, what I do, what I do now. Thanks so much, Doug. It was such a great honor and pleasure to, to talk with you about this today. Oh my gosh, David, I'm so happy to have been able to be here with you. Um, you know, and I just want to say that 
your show is a gift. Um, it is it does work in the community of poets who and and you know and and people who are writing poetry um, to hear how much care you take into reading people's work. It's inspiring and it's a tremendous gift and it makes it possible for me to tell the people who study with me that their decisions about what they write make a difference because people will be reading it closely. And that, that's, that's a tremendous gift. That's a, that's a tremendous gift and service. And so I'm just, so I feel very fortunate to be here today with you and just thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I, I, it's, it's weird how when really important things happen, that's when the words fly away. But um, this, you articulating that in words to me uh, feels like a gift also. I, I, it was, it's a real pleasure to, to, um, to engage with it together um, during this time. We've been talking today to Douglas Kearney about his latest book, Show, from Wave Books, and his latest album, Fodder, from Phonograph Editions. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Douglas Kearney's work at douglaskearney.com. For the bonus audio archive, Kearney adds the reading of two new poems. This joins Jory Graham reading Creeley, Richard Powers reading W.S. Merwin, Arthur Z. reading Three Eras of Chinese Poetry Translation, and work from many others, from Laylee Long Soldier to N.K. Jemison to Ted Chang. The bonus audio is only one potential benefit of transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. There are rare collectibles by Ursula K. Le Guin, Ricky Ducournay, and Nikki Finney. There is the possibility of becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, many months before the general public. And all listeners receive the resource-rich emails with each episode, pointing you to things I discovered during my preparation or places to explore once you finish listening. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Noemi Press and Fence Books for providing copies of Kearney's back catalog and Phonograph Editions for providing the album Fodder. And of course, the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Deshwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, 
can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.